Book One, Chapter Twelve of Clara Vaughan, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ellen Preckle. Clara Vaughan, Volume One by R. D. Blackmore. Book One, Chapter Twelve. No need to recount my bitter farewell to all the scenes and objects I had loved so long, to all which possessed a dark yet tender interest, and most of all to my father's grave that some attention might still be paid to this i entrusted it to the care of an old housekeeper of ours who was living in the village my last visit was in the moonlight and dear mother was there i carried rather than led her away slight as my knowledge had been of lightsome and happy love i am sure that a sombre affection is far the stronger and sweeter as we began our journey a crowd of the villagers met us beyond the lodge and lined the gluster road as far as the old oak tree while our hired conveyance passed between them the men stood mute with their hats in their hands the women sobbed and curtsied and blessed us and held up their children to look at us our refuge was the small estate or farm in devonshire which i have mentioned as my mother's property this which produced forty-five pounds a year was all that now remained to us except a sum of a thousand pounds left to me by a godfather and of which i could not touch the principal the residue of the personality and the balance at the bankers we had refused to take, being assured that legally we were responsible to Mr. Vaughan even for the back rents of the Gloucestershire estate. Of course we had plenty of jewellery, some of it rather valuable, but the part most precious was heirloom, and that we had left behind. Most of our own had been my father's gift, and therefore we could not bear to sell it. As regarded myself, this comparative poverty was not of very great moment, except as impairing my means of search, but for my mother's sake I was cut to the heart and lost in perplexity. She had so long been accustomed to much attention and many luxuries, which her weak health had made indispensable to her. Thomas Henwood and poor Anne Maples insisted on following our fortunes at one-third of their previous wages. My mother thought it beyond our means to keep them even so, but for her sake I resolved to try i need not say that i carried all my relics difficult as it was to hide them from my mother when we reached our new home late in the evening of the second day a full sense of our privation for the first time broke upon us it was midwinter and in the gloom of a foggy night and after the weariness of a long journey our impressions were truly dismal jolted endlessly up and down by ruts a foot deep and slaty stones the size of coal scuttles entombed alive betwixt grisly hedges which met above us like the wings of night then obliged to walk up treadmill hills where the rickety fly crawled up behind then again plunging and lurching down some corkscrew steep to the perpetual wood and rushing stream at the bottom at length and at last along a lane so narrow that it scraped us on both sides as we passed a lane which zigzagged every thirty yards with a tree-bowl jutting at every corner at length at last we came to the farmyard gate it was not far from the lonely village of trenchiso which lies some six miles to the west of limith this part is little known to london tourists though it possesses scenery of a rarer kind than limith itself can show passing through an outer court with a saw-pit on one side and what they call a linhay on the other and where a slop of straw and muck quelched under the wheels, we came next to the farmyard proper, and so, as the flyman expressed, home to Ooze. The Ooze was a low, straggling cottage, jag-thatched and heavy-eaved, and reminded me strongly of ragged, wet horse-cloths on a rack. The farmer was not home from Ilfracombe Market, but his wife, 
Mrs. Honor Huxtable soon appeared in the porch, with a bucket in one hand, and a candle stuck in a turnip in the other. In the cross-lights we saw a stout, short woman, brisk and comely, with an amazing cap, and cheeks like the apples, which they call in Devonshire, hoary mornings. "'A massy on us, Zuki,' she called into the house. "'If here bain't the gentlefolks come, and us be all of a muck. "'Home, teal, home for thee, life, to the calves, and turn out the pegs, and take out the pick of the straw, and gee us and vetted vets.' Having thus provided for our horse, she advanced to us. "'So you be come at last. I be cruel glad to see you, sure enough. Bain't ye starved almost. An unkind place it be for the likes of you.' So saying, she hurried us into the house, and set us before a wood-fire, all glowing upon the ground, beneath an enormous chimney, podded with great pots and crocks, hung on things like saws. These pots, like Devonshire hospitality, were always boiling and chirping. The kitchen was low, and floored with lime and sand, which was worn into pits, such as boys use for marbles. But the great feature was the ceiling. This was divided by deep rafters, into four compartments lengthwise, across some of these battens of wood were nailed forming a series of racks wherein reposed at least a styleful of bacon herbs and stores of many kinds and ropes of onions dangled between mrs huxtable went to the dresser and got a large dish and then turned round to have a good look at us poor lady she said gently i'd simmer troubles viced and low but look at see there be a plenty of back and yonner and us'll cut a peg's throat to-morrer and varmer badcock'll send a ship by raisin of arno be a lambing and she turned to me way miss ye looks cruel a kind do do ee love cider no mrs huxtable not very much i would rather have water oh drat that vash ee chan't have none of thicky us has got a brown gauge of beer and more'n a dozen pans of milk and cream her chattering warmth soon put us at our ease, and as soon as the parlour fire burnt up, she showed us with many apologies, and, hopping no offence, the room which was thenceforth to be ours. After tea I put my dear mother to bed as soon as possible, and sat by the dying fire to muse upon our prospects. Not the strangeness of the place, the new ideas around me, not even my weariness after railroad, coach, and chase, could keep my mind from its one subject. In fact, its colour had now become its form. To others, indeed, all hope of ever detecting and bringing to justice the man for whose death I lived, might seem to grow fainter and fainter, expelled from that place, and banished from those recollections, where, and by which alone, I could well expect ever to wind up my clue, robbed of all means of moving indifferent persons, and retaining strong ones, and more than this engrossed, as I must henceforth be, in keeping debt at bay, and shielding my mother from care what prospect was there nay what possibility that i a weak unaided girl led only by set will and fatalism should ever overtake and grasp a man of craft and power and desperation it mattered not let other things be doubtful unlikely or impossible let the hands of men be clenched against me and the ears of heaven be stopped let the earth be spread with thick darkness as the waters are spread with earth and the murderer set sahara between us or turn hermit on the andes happen what would so god were still above us and the world beneath our feet i was as sure that i should send that man from the one to the throne of the other as he was sure to be dragged away thence to fire and chains and gnashing of teeth End of chapter twelve